Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed uh, Dan Hannum. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Hannum Capital Management. Uh, and me and Dan have been meeting together for breathwork sessions pretty much every day for the past month. I've been leading breathwork sessions on Zoom. Uh, and it's basically 10 minutes of guided breathwork. Uh, it's not the traditional breathwork you get from Wim Hof or from uh, other sources of breathwork uh, that are really intense and, and kind of get you high. It's, I'm not, it's not about getting you high. It's more about keeping you grounded um, and making you more focused. Uh, a lot of the things that will get you high also bring you off the track. And what I'm trying to get people is on, on track, like get, get you grounded as possible so you can do the work that you need to do. Uh, and so me and Dan have been doing that for about a month. And uh, just in the process, I, I found Dan through through Twitter, a friend of mine, uh, Mark Weinstein. Uh, he retweeted my tweet about breathwork sessions. Dan found that and then joined the breathwork sessions and been meeting with Dan. And then we got to talking after one of them. And he said he's into crypto. I'm really into crypto. So we I, I invited him onto the show. Uh, and turns out Dan knows a lot about crypto. Uh, he's been in it for a long time and knows a lot about other stuff as well. So I really enjoyed doing this episode. We went a lot longer than I normally do. We went about 40 minutes, 40 minutes longer than, than is normal for me. But it was a really great episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, if you do enjoy it, please join me for the breathwork sessions. I included a little one in this, in this one. We just wrapped the breathwork session with the podcast itself so you can get a sense of what it's like to do these. Uh, it's much better live rather than listening to it recorded. Uh, when it's live, there's something special about it. Uh, something about having the same, being on the same page with a bunch of different people at the same time is, is very different than just listening to a recording of it. And that's why I'm doing these breathwork sessions on Zoom, uh, is because live is a very, very different thing. So yeah, if you're interested, please come join us. You can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III, and just send me your email, um, and I'll add you to the email list where I'm, where I'm, uh, where I'm sending these out. Uh, it, it is free right now. It will not be free f all, all the time. Uh, I'm going to start charging for addition to this email list. So if you want to get on for free, uh, I'd recommend acting in the next week and sending me an e uh, sending me a Twitter DM at Stuart Alsop III uh, with your email, and I'll add you to the email list. So have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest is... Dan Hannum. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Hannum Capital Management. Uh, so it's really great to be here. We'll do, we'll do this introduction and then we're going to have a special 10-minute uh, breathwork session. Me and Dan have been doing breathwork sessions for the last uh, couple, uh, the last month or so. And uh, now I want to kind of just add this to the podcast itself because it's, it's, it's transcribable on audio. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to be here. Well, and that's, yeah, before, before we get into the breath work, um, uh, what is, why are you coming to do this breath work? So, uh, whew. um, it's kind of a, a longer story, but, um, I've been really focused in the last probably six to 12 months on just making myself holistically a better person. Um, and also been dealing with some anxiety as well. Um, and I've been incorporating yoga and meditation, um, had done a few breathwork classes before, um, before I started working with you as well. Um, so really just looking for ways to continue to make myself better day in and day out. Um, and I know breathwork and meditation and yoga and exercise and 
eating right and kind of all these things really overlap between your mental and physical health. And it was something that I knew I needed to work on. Um, and I believe, I want to say, I want to give some credit to Mark Weinstein. Um, cause I think he's the one who posted or retweeted your tweet. And, um, and then we had one, one day and I think we, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks, uh, straight other, other than, uh, your fishing trips. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it's really just an opportunity I think for me to decompress, get like 10 minutes out of the day and, have the opportunity to, to continue to practice on something that I, I know I need some practice with. Cool. So we'll take that and drop right into it. Uh, so we'll start and listeners, I'm inviting you to do the same thing. We'll start by coming to a comfortable seat. And as we come into this comfortable seat and start to pay attention to our breath, I'm going to give a little bit of an intro as to what we're doing. There are a couple different relationships we can have with the breath. There is an awareness of the breath, just becoming aware of the breath as it is. There is regulation of the breath. We as human beings have been given the gift to regulate our autonomic nervous system. Our autonomic nervous system is the automatic functioning of the breath without you having to control it. And that's happening all the time. And we as human beings have the gift to go in and actually change our relationship to our breath and, and establish some control. And this, this difference between awareness and regulation is an interesting metaphor for life um, because sometimes we don't have control over things. And in those situations, it's helpful to be aware of what's happening uh, and really figure out what it is that's happening and in a sense, surrender to it uh, because we don't have control over everything. Uh, but then we do have control over some things. Uh, and so this regulation piece of the breath can help you get a better understanding of that you can actually regulate your emotional state using the breath, or you can have some influence on your emotional state. And then another really important component is that we can also just enjoy the breath. Uh, it's one took me a long time to realize is that we can just have a basic enjoyment of the breath, be grateful that we are alive and have this sense of gratitude that everything is happening at this moment and life if we get out of the imagination of future or past even for a moment can be highly enjoyable as well just really kind of seeping or becoming grateful is, is the only word i can come for 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 the the gift of life itself so with that in mind now start to come into awareness of the breath and noticing what's happening to the breath without trying to change it. Where in the body do you feel your breath? Is the breath shallow? Is it deep? What is the relationship with feeling of the breath and the rest of the body? I'm not trying to come up with an, an intellectual answer to these questions, but actually feeling, having an experiential understanding of these questions.
also paying attention to the sounds in the room, sensations in the body. Noticing as we've become aware of what's happening now, the phenomena that are arising, the breath, the sensations in the body, the sounds around us. Now bringing attention to the thoughts and the feelings as they're arising, not getting wrapped up in any particular thought or feeling, but noticing them as phenomena that is arising, bringing our attention to the whole field of awareness happening. Noticing as we get sucked into the thoughts, we get sucked into the story that's being created by our imagination. We're not pushing that story away, but noticing it as a story, a story about reality, not reality itself. Recognizing the story and then coming back to the breath coming back to the whole field of awareness. Now start to move into active regulation of the breath. So we'll start by taking a few deep breaths. Taking a few really deep breaths. Really actively feeling the inhales grow, expand. And then in the exhales, really actively breathing out and in. And feel, maybe even bring the intensity up, really feeling this active breath. And relaxing that, feeling what, what did that do to the body? Did it bring us more energy? Did it bring some intensity? What happened? And now, instead of deep breaths, 
we're going to go for the lightest possible breath, the most gentle and long possible inhale and exhale. So, and it's a helpful metaphor to pretend as if you have a mirror in front of your nose and we're gonna aim to not even fog up the mirror just a little bit. So how lightly and long can you breathe in and out? We're aiming to lightly breathe, lightly and long breathing out until we get to the point of hunger for air. We're gonna play on the edge of hunger for air. And every time you feel that hunger of air, see if you can go for a couple seconds more. And if you need to take a larger inhale, see if you can regulate and control that inhale so that it doesn't feel like a gasp. Notice if any tension arises in the body as we start to come to this point of air hunger. Seeing if you can consciously relax. And now I'll start to introduce tiny periods of breath holding in between the inhales and the exhales, in between the exhales and the inhales. So keeping this gentle, long inhale and exhale, and also having a few seconds of retention in between the breaths. So if the mind starts to wander, gently bringing it back to this 
gentle and long breaths with breath holds in between the inhales and exhales and exhales and inhales. Anytime tension arises, relaxing the tension. And then letting go of that. And we'll take about another minute to just thoroughly enjoy the breath. Luxuriating in this basic joy, basic feeling of breathing. If you can't connect with that feeling of enjoyment, just try to connect with the feeling of gratitude. possible to just be grateful for every breath because without it we would die Now gently starting to bring movement back into the body, feeling the spine swaying to side to side or forward and backwards, feeling that movement. And if your eyes are closed, just allowing them to open up. And welcome back to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast, where we'll be talking to Dan Hanum um, from Hanum Cap Capital Management. You guys invest in crypto, right? A capital firm. Oh, let's take. Am I muted? Uh, you're good now. Yep. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so we are a, a venture capital firm that specializes in, in crypto and blockchain investment, specifically in infrastructure plays, uh, largely in seed or series A rounds. And that's so cool. Uh, and we talked on Twitter about thesis and you gave a really good and in interesting reply. I asked, you know, what is the importance of a thesis to an investment firm, a VC firm, and are there VCs who don't uh, follow a thesis? Uh, and you've got this thesis that there's the infrastructure that needs to be built for crypto to make a consumer long-term play. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I mean, I think to tackle both kind of both sides of that, I, I think the one thing that I've realized, especially going from traditional finance into crypto, which I think a lot of the more successful uh, managers in the crypto space have that background of, of understanding risk management and understanding due diligence processes and, and things like that. Um, I think it's just really important to have a, a thesis, whether it's investing or in life, kind of like what values and, and what philosophies are you standing for and in investing, that's really important to understand kind of what, what is that checklist of items 
um, which I think goes into the, the thesis, but I mean, the, the thesis in general is, is where, where is that like edge or, or where is that gap in the marketplace that, that you believe that you can have or drive value in? And for us, I, I think it's really understanding that our capital and our resources and our connections can really drive that value for entrepreneurs, especially when they're investing in and building infrastructure. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting kind of, I don't know if dilemma is the right word, but if you're familiar with like the, the crypto space, largely from 2013 to 2017, there were maybe less than 100 total investments, really run by probably three or four firms. And then in 2017, we kind of had this ICO craze where people stopped actually trying to raise capital through traditional venture and started to kind of crowdsource that, uh, that capital. Um, and I think that was a good thing for crypto because it brought a lot of awareness and press and hype and people started trying to dig in and understand what is this, what is that. Um, but then I think at the same time, it, it be, not only became real, unrealistic expectations for founders that were trying to raise non-dilutive capital, but the valuations on those capital raises were excessive beyond measure. Um, so there, there was like a, probably about like a year gap um, where most entrepreneurs, not yeah, probably most, probably 80 to 90% were trying to go through like the ICO route. Um, and then trying right, right towards the end of 2017, um, early 18, you kind of had the, the crypto bubble, quote unquote, kind of collapse a little bit. And then you started seeing more traditional founders that had either raised capital before, or had exits, um, understand that there was an opportunity to build a company in this space um, and realize that going the traditional venture route was a good option. Um, and I think from 2018 to this point, you start seeing more, um, more than venture investing kind of make a, make a big, um, a big uh, in, like imprint on, on the industry. But from our point of view, I, I think it's really understanding what, what onboards the most amount of customers, how do we get people interested in crypto, what things kind of fascinate people, whether it's gaming, gaming crypto kind of have a lot of overlap, um, or whether it's traditional finance. Um, one thing that's pretty big in crypto right now is called DeFi, like decentralized finance. So trying to provide people the same financial um, abilities without kind of the intermediaries, um, which is still going on because there's still kind of some interme intermediaries in there. But long story short, that's, uh, that's what we're focusing on is trying to find really amazing entrepreneurs that typically have some experience managing capital or raising capital or having exits before um, that are kind of looking to, to plant their flag in the crypto world. And um, and then from there, that we kind of go through our checklist of uh, once we kind of find that team or that entrepreneur and that idea, um, going through kind of that uh, evaluation of uh, the next half of the thesis, I guess. That is really interesting. There's a lot of different th ways we can go into that. Uh, the first is interesting about this question of what do we want, either as individuals or as organizations or as investors uh, and getting really clear on what do we want. And I, I thought a lot about this through my life. Because a lot of times I found myself in situations that I've never could have perceived and didn't really know that I wanted, but they turned out to be exactly what I wanted uh, without even asking myself this question of like, what do I want? And I found myself in these ridiculous situations that turned out to be amazing and interesting and sometimes very difficult. Um, and I had, no func I had no clue as to this question. Like I didn't even think it was important to ask myself what I wanted. I just kind of was just acting. And that led me to some interesting places. But now 
I'm in a period of my life where I do need to ask this question of like, what do I want? Where, where am I going? What, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, maybe 50, 60 more years left on this planet. Uh, what do I want to do with that time? That's a value to others. That's a value to myself that, you know, maybe like all these kind of deep questions. And so you really think it's necessary to ask yourself, what do you want when investment? You don't think there are investors kind of just kind of like, just do it, you know? I mean, I, I think there are both. Um, it, it's interesting because I, I kind of, I tweeted something about this yesterday, I think as well. Um, it was based on what I want to become. Is this the best use of my time? And I think that kind of has some overlap of really understanding what drives you and what motivates you and kind of gets you started during the day. Um, and I think that was really what led me from that traditional finance into crypto is even when I was working um, in traditional finance and then even working past that, um, it was what I was doing on the on my nights, on my mornings, on my weekends. I know we've talked, and we might hit on this through the podcast, but I've been sober for a little over three and a half years from alcohol. Um, and really, when that's kind of started, I realized that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were actually days where I could start getting ahead instead of just wasting away. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, so that was kind of like my passion. Um, I was really going to bed, waking up, reading, interacting, going to meetups, just digging in and doing crypto full time anytime. Um, and then it was, how do I get into the industry? But kind of going back to, back to your question, I think, I think it's just understanding where, where you see a market opportunity. One, typically from a venture perspective, what we end up doing is raising capital from outside investors called LPs or limited partners. So really what you need to be able to do is, is it's not only just like, okay, you somehow wind up with cap with money and start putting it places and hope it grows. It's, you need to actually start convincing people that you know what to do with their money not only that you know what to do, but what you're doing is going to be better than their alternatives. Um, and I think really to have a, a streamlined thesis is really important for that. Not only for what you are using as like your investment checklist, but also what, how you're selling yourself and how you're selling the firm and what those differentiators are. Um, so I think, I think it's really important that way. I'm sure there are, I know successful crypto investors that maybe are managing outside capital but are managing their own capital mm. that that do yeah. fantastically well and and they have the ability to kind of use some gut some some sort of just like natural intuition around where the, the market's going to go but i think when you start bringing more of an institutional focus to it you need to have more of a streamlined process and i think that process not only allows you to raise that capital but make sure that you efficiently uh efficiently uh, mm. d d deploy that capital uh, as well so yeah, that brings up a lot of interesting points. So it's essentially you have a story because you're not going to get anybody else on board, whether that's uh, outside investors or whether that's team members, if you're building a, a, a company uh, without having a compelling story that gets people motivated to work towards some sort of future goal. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a really good point because if, if you are working for yourself or doing something for yourself, it's fine. You don't need a story. But if you want to bring anybody else on board, you have to motivate them. And it seems to me, I'll ask you this question, can you ever motivate somebody without a story? Is the story the, is that the way that we as human beings kind of communicate and, and motivate and imagine is through this process of storytelling? I mean, I, I think it's the storytelling and I think it's the incentive as, as well. And I think both of those things are fascinating through, through crypto. And I think crypto is kind of this like lab equation where we're inputting all these different variables and trying to understand what makes people tick and what pe makes people move. So I think, I think you can without a story, but I think the story makes it more compelling and makes it longer lasting. Um, 
I think, especially on, on the investment side, you definitely need it on the teammate side or bringing in employees. I think, I think it kind of goes more toward, towards incentives. There's some people, um, I mean, I think we have a different philosophy, um, but I think in general, there's people that really are in, they're at their, their job or they're at their thing for money and that's it. Like they work from nine to five and when five o'clock rolls around, they do whatever they want and then they wake up and start at nine again. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's not my, my cup of tea, but I think it's going back to incentives. What incentivizes people? Some people enjoy, Mm -hmm. some people enjoy working from home. So if you give them the option of from work from home, it not only benefits you because they'll typically do better work, but it benefits them because they have a better work life balance. So I, th- I think it's both, but I think the storytelling is massive. I, I think, especially when raising and deploying capital, you need to be able to, to look at the story and, and use that story, as we mentioned, to get the capital. But then when you're deploying it as well, especially looking at crypto and how early we are, the story is a big thing because the, the total addressable market typically ends up being big. Um, but the actual progress towards that total addressable market is, is typically small. So how, how are we getting people to think big and how are we thinking people using their experience, whether they're coming from, um, from manufacturing or, or any of these industries that have overlap with crypto now. But um, I guess to answer the question, I think it's really incentives and storytelling. And I think that the best entrepreneurs and the best investors understand the importance of the story and are able to articulate the story very well. Okay, that's really interesting. It seems like this conversation is, is a a, I don't know, a, a practical application of what uh, Yuval Harari talks about in his book, Sapiens. Have you read that book? Or- I have not. So I'm probably one of the only people that haven't read <laughs> any of his books. Uh-huh. Um, but they're on the, they're on the book list. And it basically, he says that, that we as human beings have conquered the world because of our ability to tell stories uh, and to, to incentivize each other through, through, through these storytellings and our collective imagination uh, that al- has allowed us to solve the problems that we've needed to solve in order to become the dominant species on the planet. Um, and it's and it's our ability to go into the future. And this is really interesting because now we can apply it to crypto. Crypto is small right now. We don't have a lot of infrastructure. We don't have a lot of things that like, you know, we've got Coinbase, which is, and you've got all your, you know, national versions of that, which allow us to buy and sell this stuff. You've got DeFi, which is just starting to give people um, loans and kind of give these, tra- uh, unbundling the traditional um, crypt, uh, traditional finance kind of things, but it's still really, really early, even though we have a lot of, you know, relatively very little money compared to traditional capital, but absolutely a lot of money. Um, uh, and, you know, you have these ICOs who have, who have raised hundreds of millions of dollars uh, without even a functional product because they told the story and because they were able to market so well. Uh, um, and it's so, it's so interesting because it's like, it, uh, I'll, and I'll bring the other question that I had from your first first five to ten minutes was, you we have this market cycle where it was completely unknown except to people who were very very far on the fringes of of society. Like I remember going, you know, I found out about Bitcoin uh, because uh, my co-founder at the time uh, was a Brazilian guy uh, who was starting a company and had found out about all this different stuff about YC and and all these different things and 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 like the people that were involved in Bitcoin were so fringe. Uh, and these guys were the ones who managed to stay in it the long enough until it actually became something. And it's, and these guys have faith uh, that it is going to overtake um, the, the traditional financial system and that we're going to start to see, you know, countries like Venezuela that, 
start to actually have their backing in Bitcoin as opposed to buying US dollars or buying gold. Um, and it's, it's just like, it's so interesting that these stories that we weave. And so that gets to this point of this in seems relevant to things like evolution where you have the, where you have high, high competition among different species for limited sources of food. Uh, and then you, you know, you have a species eating up all the food, uh, and then causing a famine or whatever, and then everything dies and then and then it's like back and forth uh, it seems like financial markets have this similar highly competitive nature to them uh, and then you have these periods of evolution where you have this cambrian explosion of new interesting species that are being created because of these evolutionary competitive pressures uh, and then you have periods of things where everything dies like you know um, uh, dinosaurs and and some people think that we're in a current stage for, for, for a lot of other species and maybe even human beings themselves. So it's really interesting. That's what I'm getting from this conversation is that, that it's just this interesting, highly competitive market. And I talk a lot about this on the show where we have, uh, we have social dynamics, which aren't necessarily based on natural laws. And then we have natural laws, which are natural principles of the universe that if you try to break them, you will get broken against them. Uh, uh, one would be example of gravity, another one would be death, uh, uh, kind of like these principles of the universe that, that are, are not, it's not possible to change them. Uh, so it, there's, there's always this interesting interplay. Uh, anything that came up for you in that, in that whole diatribe? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I think it's, I think something that we like, we, we hit on, especially on like on the storytelling side, on the evolution side, I think, I think one of the big things, especially when you mentioned kind of like the fringe group that, that were into crypto early, I think that was, that was kind of largely where, where I was, especially back in like 2013, 2014. I think it, especially back then it took a different type of person, typically more on the libertarian side, uh, somewhat anti-government side, somewhat free market side um, that, that dreamed and believed that we had the opportunity to actually make the world a better place. And I think that's, from an entrepreneur's point of view, typically how people get started, it's, it's either having the experience with something and understanding that you can make that experience better. And I think that's really what a lot of people were realizing, especially when with money. And I think that's something that I always ask when, especially in 2017, 2018, even, even now, um, you get people from high school, from college, from, from anywhere that's love. How do I get into crypto? Blah, blah, like, how do I get started? And it's just like, the thing I always ask is like, what is money? And it's like getting them started on that conversation. And most people, when you think about it, don't even understand how money works, how it operates, um, how it's actually valued, um, how it's printed, um, how it's being overprinted. Um, so I think, I think when people kind of started down the, the, the what and the hows, um, then it gives them more reasoning and, and more of that story to understand kind of the intricacies of how it all operates. But um, I don't know, I guess that's kind of, I've kind of what, what came up for me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is money? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's two, there's two kind of main theories uh, of thought on money. And typically when, when you think about money, there's kind of like a few different examples of, of how money is used, whether it's a medium exchange, a unit of account. Um, and then there's kind of like the older theory of really being used as like a barter. So that's kind of like the theory of 
when you look back thousands of years and you look at people started using rocks and seashells and beads and then it started becoming like animals and then like materials and then the materials started being denominated in coins and then so there's kind of like a history of, of people are looking to barter and, and find ways to add and transfer value from one another um, and I think where it kind of became more popular is once that trading ecosystem became built up um, people needed a way to actually be able to, to trade their items whether it's on the Silk Road not the, the crypto Silk Road but <laughs> the, the old school Silk Road um, and I think that's kind of like the, the two examples that I typically see is really like the monetary theory example of money. Um, and then also just like the, the physical human evolution of, of what money is and, and how it's used. Um, and I think one of the things that, that we've seen is really a decoupling of, of the backing of that value of money and now into something that's not really value. Um, so you, when you look back, especially from the U.S. point of view, um, and I guess this does have a lot of overlap between the world as well, because most things are pegged to the U.S. dollar. But back in the 70s, Nixon took us off the gold standard, which then w allowed us to be decoupled from the backing of that unit of account, which then allowed for quantitative easing. And, and a lot of things that we're seeing nowadays where you're seeing money printed kind of at will and the inflation going excessive compared to um, the normal rate of inflation and things like that. So, um, so I, I think it's once again, kind of an evolution. I think we start off with these like primitive options of I, I have a sh like a shinier rock or my rocks different colors or whatever. And I think a lot of that comes from like, what do people value? Um, and right now people value dollars and, and, um, and I think that's probably not going to change for, for quite some time. Um, but I think that's typically how I get people started in like the crypto rabbit hole is starting to ask themselves those questions. And I think, um, I think there's a lot of kind of spider webs that you can go down and, and start digging into it. But I think when, when you start realizing that our dollars right now are not backed by anything, then it, then it kind of gives you this kind of light bulb goes off in your head and you start kind of thinking about how everything else operates. Well, and that's really interesting because a lot of the common complaint or a common uh, criticism that most people outside of crypto have towards Bitcoin is they say that's not backed by anything either. They say that it, there is no, there is nothing backing Bitcoin. Uh, and then somebody like Anthony Pompliano would say, well, it's actually backed by math or it's backed by an algorithm that essentially um, is unchangeable unless you get a majority of people who, uh, to change it, uh, that is unchangeable and that will give a certain amount of, um, will uh, have pe miners receive a certain amount of reward that's based on time uh, over time. Uh, and so that's the thing backing it. But then, but then even the question of the U.S. dollar and and what's backing it, I would actually say that what's backing the U.S. dollar is faith, and what's backing Bitcoin is ultimately faith as well. And it's faith in a story because I think that most people who are backing Bitcoin right now, including myself, are that I have faith that Bitcoin will continue to rise because of the political implications of the u.s government uh and what they're what they're doing with the dollar and i believe that i almost trust the algorithm more um and and so i i have faith and i know a lot of other people who have been in it much longer than me also have a lot of faith and they're not, I, I don't think i don't see them selling it anytime soon because even if it goes down to three thousand dollars or two thousand dollars they still think long term this thing is going to go up 
Uh, and it's a similar thing with the U.S. dollar. They have the people, you know, people in Cambodia have faith that the U.S. dollar is not going to fluctuate, where they do not have faith in their their own currency to not fluctuate as well. So I'm curious what you think on that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the faith is a big a big aspect, even going back kind of like the the origination of of using like the rocks and the sheet the seashells like what what makes them valuable it's like because people believe that they had value and people came to a common agreement that this rock and that rock are are uh, being able to be transferable but i mean i, I think i think there is like a large element I, i'm i have like a, a a similar viewpoint as pomp in the sense that i i trust algorithms more than i trust human greed and i and i think we're at the point in time where there hasn't been enough checks and balances from a public perspective i think there are quote-unquote checks and balances into the monetary uh theory and, and how that actually has worked and, and how things are supposed to work. But I think as long as we keep things in, in human hands um, and not just necessarily in human, but in a collective small knit humans that make decisions for others, um, I, I think it, it, it lends itself to have, um, to have people abuse that system. And, and I think we, we've seen that with other currencies. I, I think one of the biggest things in, in the U S especially when I talked to probably the people in like my parents get like age range from like 50 to 70 um, is really like, they don't see some of the issues that, that Bitcoin and crypto are solving because U S is so much like further ahead than all these other countries. So our, our currency is not being devalued at the rate that they are. We're not, we're not, we're able to go to an ATM on almost every street corner and take out money. We don't have capital controls. Like the, 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 it, that's always the interesting part is, when you look at the U.S. compared to other countries, we are typically on more of the, the freer side for monetary exchange. But, um, but I, I think the one thing that really changed my opinion on, on Bitcoin, especially looking at it long term, is understanding that I, I look at Bitcoin in, in terms of BTC and how much I'm collecting and how much I, I have instead of how much that's worth in dollar value. Um, and I think that takes uh, probably a certain level of financial freedom to have. I, I think if you have a hundred bucks and, and you invested in Bitcoin, but then you need to pay a bill, like you're, you're going to go pay your bill. So I think it takes a level of financial freedom um, to be able to, to consistently invest in something long-term. Um, but I, I'm very bullish on, on the sense that I think, I think a non-sovereign monetary unit of account is going to be used. And I think Bitcoin provides the best option, especially with, the, the supply schedule and uh, and the hard cap that's that's associated with it. Oh yeah, I love I love what you just said there because that brings a new piece of vocabulary into my into my world is non sovereign. What did you say? Non sovereign what? I don't even remember. But <laughs> non sovereign in, in in the sense that it's not controlled by by a government. Um, it's not government controlled. Um, it, it's controlled by by the people and, and by math and by algorithms. And I think that's something that, that adds the most value, as, as you mentioned, with the believing in the algorithm. I, I think time and time and time and time again, um, we've seen governments not only abuse the, their powers, uh, but abuse the, the monetary currency for their political uh, objectives. And we've seen that with the United States and oil. And there's a lot of reasons why the USD is the uh, the global currency um, of why most things are pegged to the USD. And I think there's a lot of people that have made their, their lives and their careers and, and their businesses on that fact. And um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people have, have died to protect that fact. Um, and, and I think it's just, it, it's it, to go back into kind of like the, the history of, of non-sovereign currencies, there, there were some attempts in, in the 80s and 90s to 2000s where 
people had different cryptos or even like Liberty Dollar where people actually had printed coins. But I think that the biggest issue with those is, is something that we even saw yesterday with like with EOS. Um, it, it, there's, there's typically been like a central figure or there's been a person where you can go after and say, stop doing this, you're going to jail. And I think that's been the largest benefit of Bitcoin is the fact that there isn't a company. There's no PO box. There's no person you can put in jail. There's nothing that you can really do to stop it. And I know that's a whole separate conversation we can get into of what are like the tax spectrums on Bitcoin. But I think that's something that, that's been the reason why it's been so successful is, is if there was Bob and, and the U.S. government could go to Bob and, and put him in jail, then I don't think it, it would have lasted these last 10, 11 years. That is a really good point because what we have with, I mean, it's just such a brilliant move that he did, that he, he or she did, uh, that created this economy, this 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 uh, piece of code, and separated any sort of uh, uh, human element connected to it, because you can go back, you know, like to religion, talk, and and Bitcoin for many people is a religion. Uh, it, it, you know, you have Jesus or you have Muhammad and you have Buddha and all of these people start looking at that individual person as like, oh, this is the, this is the channel under which it comes. So they start to revere that channel and then all sorts of weird shit happens. Uh, uh, and then with Bitcoin and then you, and then you have the, the, the governments uh, and that's the more dangerous part because you have in China is a specific kind of, they've figured out a formula for how to do this, which is, Anytime a popular rising is coming, they look at the head of the popular rising, they find the people who are leading it, they kill them, uh, and then the, 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 the uprising goes down. Uh, and so they figured that well, but the U.S. government also does this, like every government. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, well, there's, there's quite a few examples of, uh, of the U.S. doing that as well. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like, it, 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 it's a common thing, both in religion and in governments, to find the leader, kill the leader, uh, and, and that's so brilliant about Bitcoin because he saw that he's like, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. And then I love it because then you have other people who come in and say like, oh, I'm that, I'm that guy because it's anonymous. Um, so they think like, yeah, like, like yeah. Um, don't get me started with with the Craig Wright bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so yeah. interesting, and it's so like we, we we're at this point in history where where those things are now clear, and and everybody can see them if you pay attention. You you can see these 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 things happening. Uh, uh, and then you have technology that arises. And as you said, you trust the technology more than you trust other human beings. Uh, this gets into something I want to talk to you about. You have yeah. this centralization and decentralization. And these are words that people throw around a lot uh, without actually knowing what they mean and what they, what they talk about. Let's start to have a conversation about that. What does centralization mean and what does decentralization mean? Yeah, I mean, great question. Uh, I think... I think centralization in the sense is that there's a small minority group of people that are making decisions on behalf of the rest of the group. Um, so whether that's in government where you have your politicians and your senators and, and that type of group where, where they're democratically elected, but then they're the ones that are making the decisions for the most part. Um, they're the ones that are putting bills into law and they're the ones that are making the decisions. And then we kind of are on the outskirts saying, okay, like that was good. That wasn't, we need this, we need that. So I think from like a centralization point of view, it's like, is there a small group of people that are making the decisions for their, for the collectiveness? And then on the decentralization spectrum, I think that the hard part is that there isn't like a, a in my opinion, like a very clear definitive answer of what decentralized means. 
Um, and I think it could be decentralized in, in the power. So decentralized in how decisions are made. It could be decentralized in like intermediaries. Like are there intermediaries that are making, that are either rent seeking or taking a cut out of something that's moving forward. Um, but I think in large part decentralization is kind of, is the inverse of centralization, which I know sounds so cliche, but it's like, especially in Bitcoin, like we have BIPs or like Bitcoin improvement protocol. So we have a community of developers and the general community, and it's not blocked off from anyone. Like anyone can go on. Obviously people that are more tech savvy are typically the ones that are uh, presenting these options and then they get voted on and things like that. But I think that's kind of the way I look at it is like, is our decision being made from a collective perspective or from a centralized perspective and a small group perspective? Um, and I know there's a million different rabbit holes and viewpoints on both of those terms, but I guess that's kind of like my quick off the hip response. And that's, uh, we'll get, we'll go, we'll get into more, some more nuance on that and we'll bring in some, un, what other people might say are unrelated, uh, threads. One of which is philosophy where you have essentially like all of life follows through a cycle where you are. So the atoms that existed in my body before I were born were totally decentralized. So they were spread out and diffuse. Uh, and then they centralized in my mother's womb. And then I was born. Uh, and then this centralization process started to get a little bit more decentralized. And then within that, each moment that is arising, there is a centralization and decentralization of thought. We've done it a lot in our breathwork sessions where we basically focus on one thing. And that's a centralization of concentration, uh, of, of awareness into a particular point. And then we also decentralize and we we essentially focus on everything that's going on and, and, and centralize our, uh, decentralize our attention. So it's constantly arising where there's centralization, decentralizing. And I would argue that this is also happening in crypto because uh, at first it was totally decentralized. You had, you had these people working together, collaborating on Bitcoin, no, no you know, heads. And then they kind of formed groups together and they started to, um, to actually centralize the, 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 the building of it in a sense it's still relatively decentralized compared to other things uh, and then you have these other things that started arising then coinbase happened and coinbase is a centralization it's a centralization of an on-ramp off and on on-ramp and an off-ramp to this decentralized currency um and so so it keeps on going back and forth and you know organizations have been going through a very similar thing ever since probably the 1960s 1970s we had organizations start to want to get rid of the management uh, want to get rid of the management kind of class and they wanted to decentralize it and do what's called holacracy. Uh, but they find out that that doesn't work. The North Korean army once tried it. The North Korean army, basically, they tried to, they, you know, they're this communist country. They wanted to be uh, a totally flat organization. And so they got rid of uh, uh, captains and any sort of uh, hierarchy in the army. And it turns out when you're in war, when you're in the chaos of war, you need centralization. Uh, and so they, it didn't work out very well. Uh, and so, so you have this kind of, and it's going to happen again in, in crypto as well. And, and that's the interesting thing I find about crypto is because you have this decentralized asset that is essentially trustless. Uh, and then you've got who gets drawn to that is the least trustworthy people. Uh, and so you've got a whole bunch of like scammers who are, you know, like Craig Wright is like, it's, it's, they're all trying to get a piece of it. Uh, and then, and then, so it's really, it's, it's funny. Any, anything come up in that? Yeah, uh, actually a lot. I mean, I think I think when you look at like decentralization and the decentralization, decentralization, I think it's like a pendulum, and you start seeing the sw the swings from the pendulum. And I think 
at any point in time, you can look and see kind of where we are on that swing. So I think there are some times where we've been super decentralized. And that's what allows that the creativeness and the, the new ideas to flow. And then you start seeing that it gets abused. So it starts becoming a little bit more centralized. So even going back to the Coinbase example, you started seeing like Mt. Gox and you started seeing these exchanges that operated before Coinbase that ended up either being hacked or had some like shady stuff going on and got shut down or people ran away with the funds. Like, but I think that was kind of like that extreme. And then it started morphing into the Coinbase extreme. And then Coinbase started like giving rise to like Gemini and Kraken and all these other exchanges. And they it started swimming in kind of right back again, where like the ICO craze started happening, where people would have to go directly through the centralized exchanges, and now people started building on DEX. So like decentralized exchanges are now becoming more popular as well. Um, and then the other thing that popped up is kind of like the mining, going back to like the centralization, decentralization, kind of same thing on the pendulum. You started seeing one of the things that going even back to our, our previous conversation around like how Bitcoin survived is in, in addition to not having one person, there's not like a central server that you can just take over or bomb or, um, or kind of destroy like the, the, the ability to have this, this network distributed across nodes across the entire world has made it so strong. Um, but then you start seeing that centralization of the mining power as well. And when you look into Asian countries and into China, you start seeing these large mining groups that control significant amounts uh, of mining power. So I think, I guess that's one way that I really look at, um, really look at kind of like the centralization and decentralization and even moving into, into back into more crypto specific, even in DeFi, you start seeing that as well. Like DeFi is really interesting and fascinating from like a personal perspective. But I think right now we're still on that centralized perspective uh, of a lot of the, there's companies that are providing these services um, and they're not directly decentralized um, and autonomous and really available um, without those intermediaries. So it's like, a lot of things you kind of need that centralization factor to build out that infrastructure. And then people start realizing how the inner, like the interconnectedness works. And then people can start plucking out kind of those intricacies into decentralized uh, operating systems, kind of going from like that centralized exchange into the decentralized exchange. So that's, I guess some of the stuff that came up. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really like the point of uh it's, it's just a pendulum that swings back and forth depending on all these factors and again it goes back to philosophy it goes back to this idea of uh, uh dependent origination in buddhism where it's like we can talk about cause and effect for a lot of different things uh, but when we get right down to it each effect is a is a is a factor of multiple multiple causes and anytime that we say this is the cause for that uh, we get into a, a story about the nature of reality. We pull, we take reality, which is nonlinear and complex and impossible to really to comprehend with words or our, our, our brains. Uh, and then we put it into a linear narrative and we say that this caused this, which is really helpful for a lot of things. It's very valuable to do that. But in the end is not an accurate representation of the complexity of, of everything, um, which is, again, it goes back to our original point, which is that human beings the way that we won is because we were able to take complexity, put it into a narrative, share that narrative with other human beings, rally them together, give them incentives, give them a story and like kill the mammoth. Uh, you know, it's like, and that's how we won. Yeah. Um, and so it's so interesting that it, that it, that it, and this is what I love about philosophy. So most people say philosophy, oh, it's just kind of like navel gazing and stuff like that, but it allows us to kind of see the similarities between these different things. And I think, no, I think, I, yeah, go for it. 
Oh, I said, like, I agree. I, I find philosophy fascinating. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, especially early on in crypto do as well, uh, of the philosophy between how people operate. And that's kind of where some of these ideas came from is how do we give that power back to the people to make their own decisions and that autonomy and that self sovereignty. Um, but one of the things that, that you had mentioned that kind of just sparked a light is, is, is using those, those, those stories or those narratives to try to comprehend something that's maybe incomprehensible to that degree. It reminds me anytime I hear someone ask, like even yesterday I had, had a friend ask of, of why Bitcoin dropped in price. And it's like, we're so, so conditioned to be like, this is why that's the exact reason when there's like, there's not like, I can give you theories, like whether it's like having backs come out with a physically settled uh, Bitcoin, uh, physically settled Bitcoin futures, which actually kind of creates more of like a price discovery effect. Um, so there's always like things and it's just one thing that I've noticed so prevalent in, in, in crypto um, is when it goes to the price, it, it's, you see people online all the time, especially on Twitter, who are using technical analysis, which I think can help. But I think it's typically always after the fact. It's it's the price changes, and then you draw your support lines and you un, you try to understand how it changed. But it, it just it just popped in my head that, that, that kind of same train of thought where people are always looking for that reason, and especially I think in crypto, probably in in traditional stocks as well. But any investable asset, when it starts moving in price, it's like why. And then you start seeing those articles from Forbes and whatever, like this guy says it's because of this. And it's like, okay, like it might've been, and I'm sure that had a, like a, a cause and an effect, but um, I don't know. It just it started uh, giving me some, my brain started spinning on that one. And, and that goes into incentives because the Forbes has an incentive because they write that article. It's really easy to get clicks. Once you give somebody the reason why, uh, when you pull one of these narratives out of these many narratives that go into to why something is the way it is, you pull it out and say, that's the reason. And which is also something I wanted, wanted to get into, which is also the, a huge problem we're about to face. I see that we're about to face because I, I see a global contraction in terms of uh, politics, in terms of finance, in terms of uh, uh, conflict. Uh, in a similar way to what we saw before World War, World War II. Um, and what happens once that happens is that you get a lot of people who are on uncertainty. Most people don't do well in an uncertainty. Uh, and so then you get somebody who provides certainty with a narrative, uh, and then they provide this narrative that seems to explain everything that these, these people are uncertain about. And then those people who are uncertain latch onto that person and say, oh, he's our leader. He knows what's going up. And then when he starts asking them to, you know, kill people because they have a different narrative or whatever, it's like, yeah. That, so I, 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 you know, I, I worry about that because that's I, I see that happening is that we're entering this world and and um, of more uncertainty and and it's not it's not a great time when people get uncertain. Um, no, I mean, I, it, it's it's interesting you said it, especially in that way as well, because I think it goes back to like the narratives of of employment as well. It's like. I think what makes entrepreneurs so great is that they thrive in that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what going back to like our beginning of the conversation is like, that's how you start kind of wrapping that story into bringing people into your company is how do you frame that uncertainty into as certain as a prediction as you can, or here's a roadmap of what we're moving forward to. Um, so it's just funny how all these things kind of interrelate, but I mean, I agree with you. I think, I think there's two tweets that I had yesterday um, that that somewhat provide some like some light on that is is one that one that I tweeted was the ability to organize and act on information is what sets people apart. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that really just kind of 
blew my mind because I was trying to find something on YouTube and I found out how to do, I was trying to, trying to change a pipe that was like leaking and long story short, found it in like 10 seconds on YouTube. And it's like the ability, the information that's out there is so readily accessible. It's like, how can people actually synthesize that information, organize that information and act on it? And I think that's what separates people that end up doing things from people that don't end up doing things. And then going back to kind of the uncertainty side, I think this kind of interrelates as well as this was not my tweet, but one that I retweeted is, you know, it's really a threat to our democracy that 90% of the news media that most Americans rely on to help them be a part of informed electorate are engaged in partisan activism under the guise of journalism and simply cannot be trusted. I think that's the other side of things as well is most people don't know how to get news and they just rely on sources. And then that goes into the narrative as well as Republicans listen to these three radio stations and these three television and Democrats listen to these. And there's no ability to have that discord um, between differing opinions that isn't such strought on party lines. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that has always blown my mind in politics is I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I don't even, that's a whole nother podcast (laughs) episode, but Anyways, I think it's just fascinating to see people that are so, so just streamlined in, in their ways of thinking and they get it from other people influencing their thought patterns that they can't extract those thoughts and be rational. Um, I don't know if rational is the right word, but be remove themselves from the information and make their own conclusions and decisions. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I guess that's those three kind of different tweets or impacts had like an interesting kind of cauldron bubbling up in my mind uh, of not only how people get their information synthesize it and organize it and act on it but then also how that same process is used for those political um things that that we might be talking about as well yeah it goes back again to you know this is my my story about 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 what you just said but it goes back again to fear uh when we are uncertain when a lot of people are uncertain they tend to find that one thing that they think is certain which is identity uh their ego personality uh and particularly in the given the 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 lack of cultural narratives that string people to get that unify people we've lost those narratives uh for a, an interesting reason which which is that those narratives were used like people like hitler to to kill a lot of people and and so there is a reaction against that uh, and so that makes sense, but we've lost those narratives that essentially unify different cultures together. And we're in, in a sense, we're now building a a global um, uh, narrative, unit, unit, unifying narrative through the internet. And I, funny enough, I think through Burning Man uh, and also crypto and technology culture, it is like this weird thing that's happening where we're, we're building a new narrative of morals and there's a lot of conflict and a lot of um, things that are going to happen. We've essentially lost these thousand year old history stories uh, and said, and we've got a new, uh, a new th- streams of thought that are nihilistic in a sense and saying all of that is worthless and bullshit and, and it's not helpful at all. And like, there were a lot of, there are a lot of problems with it, but it's, you know, it's, that's not totally true that all, like that was, that was the way we had kind of rallied together for thousands of years is under these narrow unifying narratives and now they're all being lost Uh, and so people are uncertain and if all of those narratives are lost then what is the one thing that each of us has it's this ego it's this personality this mask 
and we say, oh, well, that's been stable my whole life. So that's this thing that's existed since, since the beginning. So I can, I can worship that. I can, I can, if I can't worship God, I can't worship all these other things. I can worship myself. Uh, and then we, you know, and, and that is like a recipe for narcissism, <laughs> essentially. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what I see is, is just this, this, and, and then you get, that's the identity. And then the identity, you find your tribe. And, you know, the tribe is the red, the red shirts or the blue shirts. And, you know, it's like, I've got my tribe of people who believe that immigration is bad and they've, they really like this Trump guy and, you know, they unify around this tribe uh, and because they fit in with that personality and they got the blue shirts and they get, you know, you know, I, I, I believe in this progressive mores and all these different things and, you know, all the colors of the rainbow and, but except for that one color that used to oppress everyone else. So, you know, like that, that one's bad. Uh, but it's, so it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's really interesting that, uh, I guess we're getting into the politics stuff, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think what you said is, uh, difficult and it's gonna, uh, I don't, I don't know what to do about it except for, uh, buy some Bitcoin and learn how to live in the forest. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think the, the, the one thing that I think most people aren't willing to do is have their ideas and their thoughts challenged because they can attach to them and they create their identity in their thoughts. And most of them don't have original thoughts to create that identity. So their identity is built off someone else's thoughts. Um, so the interesting part that I love is finding people that think differently from me that are still open and, and have the a level of uh, EQ high enough to have, to have conversations that, are, that aren't comfortable and that can actually get into into it. And I think that's something that I enjoy is I don't think I'm right on everything. I think I probably have different viewpoints than a lot of people, but I love being able to have active debates on those viewpoints and try to understand someone's other side um, and try to understand that I want to be, I want to continue to learn and grow. So if you have something that's, that gives me a different way of thinking and it's better, different, allows me to use that in a different mental model and, and improve, then I'm going to use it. So I think, I think it's just one thing that kind of I've learned, especially through my own like sobriety experience is really getting to that root cause of like, who am I? And asking myself that question and seeing what kind of comes up um, and just having that self discovery and that self reflectiveness to, to really be able to use my own thoughts, my own history, my own experiences to make choices for myself um, and, and use that information that I, that I see from these different viewpoints and actually have an opinion on that based off my experience or, or like, um, my, uh, my, my thought process. So I think it's just interesting to see, cause I think a lot of people don't have, they've never been introspective enough to understand how they operate and how they think. I think once you become introspective, um, and, and start understanding your own self, then you can start trying to understand how other people function. Um, but I, but I agree um, on, on kind of like the narrative side. I think that's something that's even prevalent in, in crypto as well is, um, is narratives. And, and there's a guy named uh, Nathaniel Whitmore uh, who does a, an amazing job of doing narrative watches and things like that. And, um, but I think narratives will always be kind of that storytelling feature that we've discussed of, of how people cling to things. But I think, I think it's the people that don't have the ability to create their own narratives that are looking for other narratives to follow. And that, that has a lot of impact on politics is most people don't even understand the, the things that they're voting for or the impacts of, of these bills or the impact of having this person in office or that person in office. It's just using those streamlined news sources 
integrating that information, not having the ability to filter any of it out and, and using that as truth. It's like the same person that watches Tucker Carlson or whatever his name is. And it's like, this guy's a genius. And the same person I watch is uh, what's Rachel Maddow or whoever the MSNBC person is. And they're both like, this is like the truth. And it's like, it's, I don't think either of them are. I think either of them are like manufactured opinions that are filtering down to people that can't think for themselves. Um, but then that's why you don't have people saying like, well, I think this way, I think that way. Let's see like, why, why do you think that way? Why do you think this way? Like, let's see, it's just like, this is my side, that's your side. And we're going to be Democrat, Republican, blue, red, and the separation. So I think the cool thing is through history, you start seeing that the element of people looking for tribes and looking for people similar to themselves to give them that sense of purpose. But then you start seeing people be factioned away into these tribes that aren't willing to actually have overlap. That gets into a really interesting point. I want to, but before we go into it, I want to uh, make sure you don't have a hard stop. Do you have a hard stop at 1 p.m.? No, I have a hard stop at two. So we can wrap for another hour if you want. Yep. Uh, so basically, what I see, and it ties into something I want to talk to you about, which is which is the alcoholism thing as well. Which is uh, in our society, we you know we've lost this uh, trial of fire that each individual had to go through in order to leave the group and then come back to the group. It's essentially like a a, a, a rite of passage uh, where each where each you know when when. I, I, I know that it happened for for boys. I'm not sure it happened for girls in the in the tribe. But you know, once the boy gets to a certain age, they go off into the forest. They might take some psychedelics. They go off on their own, uh, and then they and then they figure out what they're made of, uh, and then they come back into the into the into the tribe. And and that you're forged by this essentially fire of struggle, and then you become an adult. Uh, and we've lost that. We've essentially we we don't have that anymore. Um, we. Uh, we've delayed that process and I think it's through a fear of death um, uh, because if we, if we, if we don't look at that and maybe I'm speaking specifically to the U S I, I think it's in many forms in a lot of other places. Um, but, and then, but, but for some of us that that struggle is, is brought to us relatively quickly, quickly, whether it's through alcoholism, whether it's through kind of a medical issue or anything like that. And that's what I want to going back to that first question of like, what do we want? I want to understand your how you got out of the cycle of alcohol, alcoholism. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Let me see. I have so every year I do like a new post on like on my year marks. I've done like a one year, two year, three year, and I've already started writing my four year post. And it's it's interesting because some of those thoughts just came off, um, came just kind of like entered my mind something that I wrote about actually last night and and one of like the paragraphs is I've always thought of myself as a leader in everything I do one area that through numerous occasions I've realized it's opposite is with who I choose to spend my time around I'm heavily influenced by the people I spend my time with every instance in which I've had any amount of stagnation I can look back and clearly see who I was with and who I spend my time around and it becomes abundantly clear you have to go out of your own way to upgrade your circle and if you're like me that typically means shrinking your circle altogether everyone vibrates on a different level and you need to find people who can make you vibrate at a higher level people whose priorities and habits are in line with what you seek and what you're working towards i've also realized it's the people who have intentionally sought out to be in my life that bring me to the next level it's not the people who have just been in my life whether they're friends from home or just people you met a long time ago there's a reason why people end up growing apart and it takes a lot of reflection to understand that it's nature's course and that people that get removed oftentimes get replaced by people who are support and be there for you and help you advance process and progress. If you still, if you struggle around mediocrity, don't put yourself in a position where you will be surrounded by it. 
And it's just like this interesting realization that I've had kind of going through sobriety is, is that I, I want to think of myself as like this, this leader position or like the chief in the sense that like, I'm not influenced by the people that surround me, but I really think that I am. And I think we all are. Um, but going back to that, like forgery through, through the group is there is a lot of reasons why I started to drink. And I think a lot of them were the fact of that introspection. I never wanted to dive into myself and learn about myself and really dig through all the shit that was there. So it's easier to just drink. Um, and then I think it was, once again, surrounding myself with people that at the time were looking to do the same thing. So I started drinking probably when I was 12, started smoking weed when I was probably the same age, 12. Um, and that was pretty consistent all the way up until about like 24. Um, and I think at that time through middle school, through high school, through college, it was finding those tribes, whether it's a fraternity, whether it's just a group of friends that share those same, um, same ways of viewing their time. Um, so not to get off, off, off like topic or anything, but, um, but I guess like the, the biggest thing for me was looking at my potential and realizing that I haven't even scratched the surface. And then also looking at like my family history. So my father and my grandfather and my great grandfather all died before they were 50. Um, so I haven't had like a direct linear path towards being 50, so which is like mind blowing to me. Um, and then also it was this feeling that I feel maybe braggadocious or egotistical, but I think that I've always been surrounded with the people that I've been surrounded with, I've either been a little bit better of an athlete or a little bit smarter in school or a little bit better in whatever we were doing. And I think I always relied on that, that natural ability to be a little bit better or do it a little bit faster or do it a little bit easier. Um, and I didn't actually ever give anything my all. And this, it was just kind of this nagging like theory in the back of my head of like, I wonder what could happen if I like actually gave something my all and I didn't half-ass it. And I didn't like, in, in football or whatever, like I was a good football player, but I never worked out every day. So like, right, I'm, I'm better. Um, so it was just this constant nagging theory of like, what happens if I gave everything my all? Then it was like this, like this theory kind of of like, I, I really saw how much my mom struggled to raise me and my sister and, and how much a single parent can have a big struggle and really just wanted to be there for my kids. So it was this culmination of me making really bad choices through personal relationships. Um, me having that that kind of nagging theory of like, I wonder what if, and then also being like, I want to be here for my family and make sure that like my son, daughter, wife are supported and taken care of. And that was kind of like the, the culmination of all these different events. I think a lot of people have, especially in sobriety, they have more of like a, a, uh, like a, a criminal reason or like a very harsh, social reason um so like they get a dui or they get fired or their wife like they get a divorce and then they're like i don't know what else to do um so i, I was fortunate enough to never get like a dui or, or or get in trouble that way um but i think it was just like it was a lot of different things happening at once and, and all of a sudden it was it's funny it was it's march 20th 2016 which is the sunday i think it, during that year is the sunday of saint patty's day so like friday night I got shit face saturday night I got shit face started to become like where I was hung over all weekend. Um, so I don't know, I guess that's a, a lot of different things to throw out to you all at once, but, uh, but yeah, I just celebrated three and a half years, um, on, uh, on September 20th. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been an amazing journey, but I don't know, hopefully that gives some, some sort of. So you never, yeah, you never went through kind of a rock bottom experience where everything got fucked. You kind of, you had a, you had this moment where you looked out and tried to, find a reason 
that was, did you ever go through the 12 steps? I did. And I think there, there was like a rock bottom. I, I think, I think it was just like my own personal rock bottom. And, and I think it's just like people are always looking for like the social rock bottom of like the, the big three probably are like DUI or like some sort of legal trouble. Um, like career trouble where like you got fired cause you were drunk all the time or you missed an assignment or whatever. Um, or like relationship trouble. Um, and I think if anything, mine was more on, on the relationship side. I had a girlfriend at the time that I don't know how she put up with my shit. I had friends at the time that I don't know how they put up with it. And some of them stopped putting up with it. And I think that was like a big thing for me is just like, um, it was realizing that I just wasn't the person that I wanted to be. And I knew that if I continued to, to drink and not actually take care of myself and, and become kind of going back to that, like that uh, potential side. Um, it was like, I know that I can be a better person, both physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, uh, whatever the, the right word for career, um, like professionally. Um, so I think there was like a rock, bottom point definitely for me I, I just think it wasn't like a, the stereotypical rock bottom I, I think it was just realizing that a lot of relationships had been ruined mainly due to my my choices um when you asked about the 12 steps it's interesting I, I've actually had a, a conversation last week with, with a roommate from kind of like the dark period when I was getting really really like probably like the, the heaviest alcoholism that, that I had and and we haven't talked in probably five or six years um and I just reached out and I was like hey man like do you have time for a call? We hopped on a call, kind of walked through like what I was thinking, what he was thinking, why things went the, the wrong way. Like we were good friends at the time. And, and then I think through my actions, which led to his actions being like irresponsive to me, um, ended up just going like separate ways and in a really bad manner. And, and then kind of both just didn't talk for a long time. So um, anyways, I, I think there was a rock bottom. I, I just don't think it was in like the traditional way. I think a lot of relationships got impacted and, and I just was the person that I wanted to be and, and thought that I could be, uh, be a better person if I just got out of my own way. And that's interesting. Um, it reminds me, so I've been, I've been actually doing the 12 steps. steps. I haven't had specific uh, substance abuse th things, but I have had uh, behavioral stuff that, that uh, and, and the, the fourth step where you go back and make amends, the one you just talked about has been, super interesting um because it's it's this recognition that like we all are addicted in some sense and with social media it's becoming much more clear that that this cycle of addiction whether that's to alcohol whether that's to video games whether that's to um social proof or whatever or likes or whatever it's uh um uh, it's it's clearly stems from very deep things that we're not willing to look at it and then when you start to look at those things, that's it, it's you look the beast directly in the eyes because everyone around you is not looking the beast in the eyes. They're all getting away from it. So you can't really look to them. Uh, yeah. so you have to like look it directly in the eyes. And there are things that we've done, every single one of us, that we are not happy about or not proud about and that we hide and that we say, oh, no, no, that didn't happen the way that that happened. But if we really are honest with ourselves, we, 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 we've done things that we don't, we're, we're, and those things are usually done to other people. Um, and sometimes they're done to us as well. We're also the victim. We, we go through these roles, you know, these, these roles of victim. That's the hardest thing for me uh, recently is this essentially this, this victim mentality because a lot of things happened when I was younger. Um, I tried not to do, you know, too many things to other people and I was relatively successful. I managed to kind of like 
harm myself more than I harmed others, which I'm not, which is not great. Uh, but, uh, but it's just like all of it happened and I have to be honest with myself uh, and then not play the victim. Cause the, like the victim role, no matter how much it feels good uh, to really like, yes, shitty things really happened. And like, that's the reason why I'm in these, in the situation I'm in, it's not helpful at all. And it's totally holding me back from reaching my, my full potential. Um, and I'm just like, and, and it's the, that victim role is so insidious and it just plays so many games. How, how, how do you, how have you dealt with the victim role? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is, there's definitely a lot of like, uh, like imposter syndrome from the, the victim side of things where I felt victimized because of the way people treated me. And I think it was, it's going back to the self-inspection of, of understanding that a lot of the ways that I was treated from other people is the ways that I was treating myself. Mm. And I think it's that, that integrity is such a big part of it. And I think for a long time, I was so focused on that self outward integrity of if I said something to someone that I'd do it and I wasn't focused on how to be, how to have that integrity with myself. Mm. And I think that has made a difference in both aspects of that, but also in my professional career as well is if I say something that I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And that's whether that's, I wake up at 6am and go on a run and I wake up and I don't want to do it. And I can easily like roll over and go back to sleep. It's like, go do it. Cause I told myself that I would do it. So I think it's having the integrity and having the honesty to yourself. Cause then it allows you to act in those ways to other people. And I think that's something that I lost for, for a while. It was, it was always saying the right thing that maybe wasn't truthful to get, to get out of a situation. Um, and I think that's what really caused a lot of conflict, especially later on, even with, the the uh the roommate that i was telling you about that i just spoke with this week is is there's a lot of things that i don't think i communicated well on and i expected other people to know the other half of the equation and they didn't so if they would check me on what was going on they didn't know the entire story and i didn't like i didn't have the ability to communicate that clearly so it just became this whole like thing where it's like it was always like pushing into the last thing and i think that's something that i really have noticed is like the avoidance in in myself with a lot of things whether it's through confrontation whether it's through dealing with emotions. I think that's something that sobriety has really taught me over the last three and a half years is that there's, there's nowhere to run anymore. Um, there, there's no more drink. There's no more bottle. There's no more pill. There's no more whatever. Um, whether it's a good day, bad day, sad day, a day that ends in a Y, whatever it is, um, I have to deal with whatever that is. Um, and I think just having to deal with that and kind of forge yourself through the fire has been, been amazing for me. And, and I couldn't imagine doing that. Um, or being the same person I am without going through that. But, but I think there, there definitely was like a, a victim mentality of like, I think a lot of the reasons why I started drinking is like my father passed away, as I mentioned, when I was super young, then I got put on some, some uh, medication that, uh, that I don't think I should have been on at that age. And that turned into being around other kids that were looking to impair the way that they were feeling, whether that was through drugs or alcohol, and then started enjoying both of those. And, I'm a very addictive person that I've realized through sobriety um, is I'm very addictive, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whether it's a new thing. Like I picked up surfing recently and I went every day for like two months because I enjoyed it. So it's like understanding that about yourself. But I think that long story short goes back to the self-introspection and self-realization of who you are as a person and being able to understand how you are presenting yourself to the environment and the world and how those things interact. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of victim mentality especially towards the end of, of trying to understand or like something that I, I struggled with for a while was 
trying to understand why no one tried to stop me. And it, and I think the reason why I think it's victim mentality is because even if someone would have at the time, I wouldn't have listened. Um, you know, so it's like, but it was always that like inkling in the back of my head to have someone be like, yo, like you're going down a fucked up path. Like you need to stop. But it was just like, Oh, well, dance drunk again. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I think there's a lot of victimness and, and I think a lot of it just goes back to that self sovereignty aspect of it is I kept looking for someone else to fix change impact, uh, make progress for my life and, and stops stopped understanding that that all comes from within. And I think that's something that I really enjoy with crypto as well as having that sovereignty to make decisions for yourself. Um, and, and then also dealing with those consequences. Um, so I don't know, hopefully that helps. <laughs> yeah, there's two points that I, we could go into. Uh, the first is something you brought up about, and I can't remember the, the actual context of it now, but it's like, <clears throat> I've traditionally thought of myself as an introvert. So somebody who has difficulty being around other people for too long. Um, and so I followed that for a long time and I went off for two years and I, all I did was meditated and was on my own for two years, barely spoke to anyone else. It was also, I was getting off of these antidepressants. I had a similar situation to you where I was put on these pills at a young age, which were not uh, good for me and then had to get off of those. And that made me more introverted um and so like went totally down that rabbit hole of like i'm just going to remove myself from this world um and then part of recovering from that is essentially not removing myself from this world i started the podcast i started having conversations at least one conversation with somebody a day uh and now it's like but it's funny because it's like each time that i think i got to a point where i'm like okay this is it i don't have to do anymore i can go off and be on my own for the rest of you know for the rest of the day life keeps on putting me in these situations where it's like, no, you need to increase that and continue to do that. Uh, and so today has been a really funny day because now I've got this hair, this fire lit under my ass because I'm, I've got to, you know, I've got to start making money. And so then, um, and so now, and, and the way you make money, I believe if you don't have a specific skill is you create opportunities. And the only way you can create opportunities is by having a lot of conversations. And so I've literally been on the, in conversation since 8 a.m. Uh, uh, and this is real, I really enjoy these breath works because it allows me to essentially like uh, not be in that conversation mode the whole time and, and go internal again. Um, and it's funny because, and then this is getting to the point where it's like, I was having a conversation with the coach, coach recently and I was like, well, I, I, I lose energy from conversations and I need to relax. And he's like, no, 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 that's the story you're saying. There is a place of unlimited energy that you can access. But the only way to access that is to essentially disidentify with this personality and with this ego. So right now I'm feeling it. I'm feeling this essentially tiredness, but that tiredness is essentially not real. It's a imagine it's a creation that in my brain, it's a habituation that my brain has like, I spend time with people, I get tired. And so now I'm starting to play with it and essentially like it's not true. And if I can witness it really, you know, I'm not repressing it. I'm like, okay, that's happening. I feel that but I can essentially witness it and change my relationship to it. And I have noticed that today I've had a lot more energy, the less I buy into that story. There's something else, but I can't remember what it was, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely share similar viewpoints, especially on like the introvert side of things. Uh, I think, I think I've always had pretty small circles of like really close friends. Um, and then I think something that really impacted me as well is, is when I was in high school, 
um, I got in a bunch of trouble and ended up doing about a year and a half um, in, in the juvenile detention center um, where you're pretty much alone 22, 20 to 22 hours a day. Um, so I think that that really impacted me in, in a lot of different ways. One, because I think I was once again going down a bad path at the time. And I think something that I definitely didn't want at the time ended up being one of the best things for me. Uh, I think if that didn't happen, then I would have continued doing what I was doing and probably would have happened when I was 18 and it would have been a whole different, uh, different story. Um, but I think going on the introvert side of things, it's, it's like, I was so, I just remember the first like couple weeks or even the first couple of days, like I was so freaked out to be alone because I was never like alone. Like I always thought that I wanted to be alone, but I was always like, I was always with someone. I was always like smoking something or drinking something with, with someone or I was playing sports or I was in class or whatever. Um, so I just remember that like so vividly that like the first couple of days, first couple of weeks, first couple of months was just so shocking to me to just be in my own head for so long. Um, and it was just something that I've seen that kind of um, has impacted me in two different ways. One, because I think that's what really started this whole introspection side of things. But I think that's something that's also created a lot of the anxiety side of things as well. It's because I'm so always in my head, which has been a blessing for me, like professionally, it's, I'm always kind of thinking a step ahead. But I think in my personal life, it, it's had negative consequences, because I'm always thinking a step ahead, or I'm always overanalyzing something that happened. Um, You're always negotiating with the universe. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to the, the narrative. It's like, I'm always looking for, for reasoning. I'm always looking for like, why things occur. Um, and if there's not a solid reason, then I create one that sounds good. Um, so, uh, but anyways, I guess where I was going with that is like the introvert side, I think really became discovered when I was literally just like alone, um, which now I've become to enjoy. And I think that's something that, that I have to battle with as well it is I, I prefer probably through sobriety and probably just through that whole journey, but like, I prefer to be alone as well. Um, so if it's like a Friday night and like, I'm hanging out with my dog in a book, like that's amazing to me where like some people might look in and be like this guy sitting in his room alone on a Friday night and he's whatever, 20 something living in LA. Um, you know, but I think that's something that to to wrap this up, that's something that I think I've really noticed is I think the people that are more aware of themselves are the ones that are willing to be alone and sit with themselves. And I think that's something that meditation has taught me, Brett Worth has taught me, yoga has taught me is is being able to sit in that pain and that discomfort, especially in yoga. Like that's something that I enjoy about yoga is, is feeling, being able to sit in uncomfortable positions and feeling okay with it. And that same thing with like breath work, like uh, using different breath work techniques to, like you said, even today, like have that feeling of like needing air, but being able to be comfortable with that feeling. So it's like all these different things of being in uncomfortable positions that I, that I can control, but like at the time I'm not controlling and just sitting and being with them. Um, it's something that has been massive to me, but I guess the way I'd wrap that up is just like, I, I think the, the people that I've seen that are more aware of their surroundings and able to have in-depth conversations around a diverse area of topics are people that are willing to be alone for periods, um, periods of time. That's, a, that's really interesting. And so then how do you make, uh, investment decisions on founders? What's your, what's your kind of like, you, you've got this thesis about infrastructure and everything like that, but then how do you evaluate the personality? Yeah. Um, so I think we, we take kind of like a multidisciplinary approach in, in the sense that 
we have people on the team that come from traditional finance, from traditional venture, from private equity, and, and from kind of more of like the startup incubator space. So we try to take kind of those four different separate siloed ways of investing and incubating and, and condense them into like one investable criteria. So from kind of like the venture capital perspective, like really in venture, you're looking at the team and you're looking at, do the people have the, the thought, the vision, the ability um, to make this happen? From like a private equity perspective, it's really all around numbers. So you're looking at how much are they raising? What are the right terms? And I think that's something that for a long time, especially after the ICO bubble came, it was just outrageous where you had a, a first time founder come in with no revenues, no, like nothing, and, and would value their business at $150 million or something like outrageous. And you, you'd kind of probably in and be like, where did that value, valuation come from? And I think that's more of an exercise to understand where that came from than understand, than saying their numbers right or wrong. But the, most of the people weren't able to, to articulate where that number came from. Um, so anyways, anyway, so I think it's, it's looking at the, like from a venture approach, looking at the team, looking at a private equity approach from like the valuation and looking at the metrics, looking at it from like a, uh, a incubator type approach like a Y Combinator type approach of like, how do we become value add? And I know that's kind of like a, a very overpopulized term in, in investing, but in addition to our capital, is it the portfolio companies that we have now that can add different, um, different relationships? Is it the relationships that we have in crypto and in finance? Um, how do we add more than just a check and how do we make sure that this company survives and thrives? Um, and I think those are kind of like a, a three main criteria on each in the individual investment. It, it becomes more condensed looking into like the, the, the factors, but I think that's like the overarching kind of criteria. Um, and then one is just like, do we want to work with these people? Um, and I think that's been, that's been something that, that has dissuaded us from investments before where they might have a great team, like on paper, they might have a, a great idea. They might have great metrics. They might have a, a great number, but something just doesn't feel right. Like the vibe's not there or the ability to interact and connect is not there. And I think that's something that, that when you get into a venture deal um, is important because we're not a liquid asset portfolio company where we're investing in token ABC today and selling it tomorrow. We're investing in founders and businesses that typically have a five to 10 year uh, track record. Some of them might fail earlier than that if they run out of capital or X, Y, Z, but so it's a really a long-term relationship and you need to have that between the investment team and the founder team to understand that, um, that you want to work with people. And I think that goes back to even our, our earlier question on, on how do you hire people? Um, how do you bring people onto your team is, is there are like certain thresholds for, for kind of that criteria that they meet, but then you get that, like that vibe of someone of, am I going to be able to work with this person for five, 10, 15 years? And, that's, that's the way that we look at things kind of on that last like check market is, mm-hmm. um, is this someone that, that we can enjoy working with and someone that uh, would enjoy working with us for, for the next five to 10 years? Here's a question I'm going to start asking everybody, but is it possible to do business with a minimal amount of stress or a minimal amount of negative stress? I mean, I think it depends one in, in what industry you're in and in what you do. I, I think anytime you're managing other people's money, there's a natural inherent stress. Um, and, but I think what makes it easier is, is that a lot of the investment capital that we're deploying comes from, from my crypto holdings as well. So, so the, my own finances are, are going into these investments. So I think not only was that easier to raise capital because they knew that it wasn't like, okay, you give me your hundred bucks and I'll invest it. And hopefully it goes well. It's like, okay, you give me your hundred, I'll give a hundred and like, so it's more like skin in the game. Um, but I think that there's always stress that happens to that. I, I think the, one of the biggest things for me, um, somewhere right. 
here. I was just reading it again the other day. Is a book from Kelly McGonigal called The Upside of Stress. And it really started helping me understand kind of like the ability to adapt and actually embrace the stress and not run from it. And I think that's most people aren't willing to adapt and, and actually embrace that stress and they avoid it uh, as much as possible. And I think once you understand that the stress is going to come, um, then, then it's easier to adapt with. And the way that we look at stress is like it's, it's the, the uncertainty, uncertainty around something that you care about. So that might be personal stress. That might be health stress. It might be family stress. It might be work stress. So I think you're always going to have stress. It's a way of dealing, it, dealing with it and coping with it. And I think for me, using breath work, using yoga, using meditation, being out in LA, being by the beach, being in hiking, going out in nature, being around my dog, like finding ways that, that helps me decouple that stress um, is big. And then also I think the stress comes from people not doing things that actually makes them happy. Mm. Like I said, the way that I got into crypto is this is what I was doing on my nights and all my weekends. So it's not like I'm not forced to wake up at 9am and be like, fuck, I need to go to the office and I need to be here for eight hours and I need to do this. It's like, it's looking at the opportunity over the obligation. Like I'm not obligated to do any of this. I have the opportunity to do this and I have the opportunity to make a very, a very nice living and support people and, and, and make sure that our employees have the ability to support their families and invest in entrepreneurs that are in our opinion, changing the world. So I think that's the other side of things. It's like, I, I enjoy what I do and I started doing this before it became even more of like a, an actual career. Um, like being full-time in crypto in 2016 was not really that that popular um so i guess that'd be that my my, uh, my side of things is just like do you enjoy what you're doing and that's always what i recommend for like my friends who are like how do i kind of step it up on uh on like my like my finances how do i make more money it's like the the question is how do you start doing what you enjoy doing and the money will follow um so if you're an artist like paint and if you're a good artist you'll be able to sell it um and that's kind of just like look at the passion and the money will follow and you can make make something for yourself. But that goes back to the entrepreneurial side of things. It goes back to the sobriety side of things. It goes back to, I think, people's ability to create something for themselves. And, and I think there's a lot of people out there that are just looking for that someone else to handle their issues or handle their problems or handle their stress. So um, I think being an entrepreneur and especially investing in entrepreneurs brings a lot of stress, but, um, but it, it, it's welcome stress. And, and it's things that give me enjoyment and fulfillment and knowing that I'm doing something that can effectively change the world, especially going back to like my traditional finance career where it was really just making rich people richer. Like we weren't, we weren't impacting anything. It was just like, okay, you have a million bucks and you want 1.2 by the end of the year. Like, let's try to get a 20% return, you know, um, which is unrealistic anyways. But, um, but it, there was just like, there was no impact. So now okay, I can actually see that I'm, I'm, I'm allocating capital into people that are actually changing the world. I can see those people changing the world. I can see people being actually, uh, if, if we're like seeing that change and, and experiencing that change. And then I think it, it gives other people the incentive to join this community. They start seeing like kind of what we talked about earlier, of like things being built on each other. Like the first person tries something, then the next person realizes that, like, that it can be done. It's like, I know it's a completely off topic, but like the four minute mile, like for the longest time, it was like, it's impossible. It can't be done. And then like, as soon as it was beat, like I think in like a month span, it was like, the four minute mile was like the world record was beat like four separate times within like a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as someone beat that threshold, it's like, Oh, it's possible. We can do it. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of same thing here. It's like, how do we, how do we get people to dream and how do we people to discover and kind of going on that crypto burning man type thing? Like 
let, let your mind run wild and like let's start fund entrepreneurs that have these great ideas that are businesses, not just ideas, um, and let them let them run with it. So I don't know. I guess that's might have been off topic, but <laughs> no, that's great. So really appreciate you coming on the show. And how can find people find out more about what you're doing or connect with you to understand more about what 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 you're into? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle uh, is just dhanum d h a n n u m eight. Um, so I'm pretty active on Twitter, like to share thoughts, ideas. I think that's how we originally got connected. And I think it's, in my opinion, one, one of the best ways to share ideas, thoughts, build your tribe, understand differences and, and, and see other sides of the, of the, uh, of, of the coin. Um, so I'd say Twitter is probably the, the most active. Um, if anyone's in LA, I'm speaking at uh, the crypto investment summit on the 15th and 16th in, in downtown LA at the convention center. Um, pretty big event if you're in crypto. Um, so some speaking engagements here and there, um, but probably on a day-to-day basis, I'm on Twitter probably more than I should be. But I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And I've actually met companies that we've invested in through that and met people that are lifelong friends through that and people that share different ideas and things like that. So I'd say Twitter is probably the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, man. It was a pleasure. I, uh, I appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to talking with you uh, tomorrow and do some more breathworks.